0: Up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll hear how attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is diagnosed in people at different ages and stages of life.
1: The ADHD adult is not somebody who is going to be running around and climbing on furniture like a hyperactive child. Inability to focus is is a very good example of inattention.
0: We'll go over what's most important to know about advanced directives with a guest from Hospice of Central New York.
2: It's good to find that person out there who will advocate for. Or what you want.
0: Then we'll learn about vaginal rejuvenation, a dermatologic treatment that can help women with urinary incontinence,
3: vaginal atrophy and other problems. The new paradigm is going to be this vaginal rejuvenation along with hormonal therapy if appropriate for the patient.
0: All that and a selection from our healing muse coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore medicine, science, and health with the experts from Central New York's only Academic Medical Center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll go over what you need to know about advanced directives. Then, we'll learn how some women may benefit from a procedure called vaginal rejuvenation. But first, we'll talk about ADHD. An expert on attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is with me today, and we're going to talk with him about what ADHD is like in children compared with adults. Dr. Stephen Ferrone is a distinguished professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences and a professor of neuroscience and physiology at Upstate, and I thank you for being here. Thank you. Well, I know you gave a lecture on ADHD recently. I was surprised how far back there is evidence of the symptoms of ADHD, even before it had the name.
1: Absolutely. Um, People tend to think ADHD is a new invention of uh, American society in the 20th century. We can go back to the 18th century and find a Scottish textbook which first identified the symptoms that we now call ADHD. Uh, They didn't call it. They called it something else. There's a German textbook where uh, the professor describes fidgety fill as a kid that can't sit sit still, doesn't do well in school, and so forth. And then you just go through history. There are many descriptions of ADHD-like symptoms, uh, most notably when you get to the early 20th century when there was an outbreak of um, a disease that affected the brain, which caused ADHD-like symptoms. And they called call that minimal brain damage because they thought the brain was damaged in some way and led to those symptoms.
0: So originally it was thought as a, a- brain damage?
1: Yeah, as early as the early 20th century, because there was this viral encephalitis that affected the brain, um, there was this hypothesis that, that this disorder was actually a problem with the brain, which they called brain damage first, later they changed it to minimal brain dysfunction. Um, and then it wasn't until really the 1980s, early 80s, that we came up with attention deficit disorder, which eventually became attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, which sometimes confuses the public, but it's all the same. It's all the same? It's all the same.
0: So, did they have treatments for the, for brain damage? I mean, how did they take care of this?
1: Well, back then, um, they didn't know what, what treatments were, but in the, around 1930, a physician named Charles Bradley, uh, working at what's now Bradley Hospital in Rhode Island, was, um doing some studies of kids and he needed to give them something which he thought would help them with some headaches they were getting so he gave them a little bit of benzodrine, which is an amphetamine compound and the next day the teachers came to him and said what did you do to our kids they are doing so much better in school they're quiet they're relaxed they they can do their math problems and he began to study this drug and found out that for some of the kids in this it was a hospital school uh, very severe, severely, severely disturbed kids um, he found that he, a subset of them were improving very much on their school behavior. In fact, the kids used to call it the math pill. Fast forward to the 1960s, Ritalin was, was invented, uh, which is the compound methylphenidate, uh, very similar, having a similar effect on ADHD symptoms. And now we know that the two stimulant compounds, amphetamine and methylphenidate, are very effective treatments for the disorder.
0: Huh. Neat. Interesting. So ADHD, I mean, we started out looking at children with this, but um, it wasn't until later that we started seeing this in adults? Or,
1: Well, in the 1960s, it was believed that children just grew out of ADHD, that there was a maturational lag, that the brain just lagged in development, and that eventually the brain would catch up and the ADHD would go away. Around the 19, early 1980s, a few of us began to um, notice that many adults were coming to child psychiatry clinics looking for help that was for a disorder that looked like ADHD. Many children who had had ADHD and grew up couldn't get care from their primary care doctors because they didn't know anything about ADHD and they wouldn't treat it. And so they would go to psychiatrists who would start treating this disorder. And so a number of research projects started in the early 80s, and we discovered that roughly about two-thirds of children will retain their ADHD in early adulthood. Um, there's this age-dependent decline in the symptoms, that um, some kids totally remit their symptoms by early adulthood, and that continues into, say, the 30s, that there's lower rates in the, in the 30s. So maybe you're down to, say, 55% or so of uh, people who had ADHD as kids will continue to have persistent impairing symptoms in, in adulthood.
0: But some of them do outgrow
1: it? Some of them do outgrow it. Um, some of them are perfectly okay when they hit young adulthood and, and further. There's some data to suggest that there is there are changes in the brain, uh, You will a normalization of the brain that helps these helps people grow out of their ADHD. We don't understand that um, 100%, um, but there's also data to suggest that the kids who are treated um, during childhood and adolescence are more likely to outgrow their ADHD um, as adults.
0: So, is this something that people are born with, and uh, or is it, or does it develop later in life, or is it, are you born with Mm -hmm. it and it's just overlooked until?
1: And most of the risk factors for ADHD that we know of occur very early in life. So that includes our genes, which we are born with. It includes events that occur uh, during pregnancy and delivery, such as pregnancy complications that might deprive the brain of oxygen for a short period of time, and we think lead to brain abnormalities. It can involve exposure to toxins, and that can occur somewhat later in life. We know that, for example, pesticide exposure is a mild risk for ADHD, or PCB exposure may be a mild risk for ADHD. She pointed point out that all of these risks are tiny risks, and that they, they cumulatively add up to cause ADHD. So it's not one gene or one exposure or because the mother smoked during pregnancy it caused the ADHD. Um, there are small effects that occur that add up cumulatively to cause, cause the disorder. That said, the onset of the disorder is variable. Some children start very early. As preschoolers, they're extremely active and difficult and, and cause all sorts of problems and, and inattentive in school later on um some children don't show the radiation until adolescence and there are some cases where an adult comes into a clinic and it's very hard to establish an onset of symptoms prior to age 12 which is actually the requirement in the diagnostic manual that they occur before age 12 uh, and sometimes that's because of inability of the patient to recall and we know from research projects that we and others have done that if you if you Diagnose ADHD in childhood, and you follow that child into adulthood, and you ask them as an adult about their childhood. They don't remember their ADHD symptoms. They tend not to recall recall that. Hmm. So, part of the uh, problem we have when patients come to clinic and appear not to have a childhood history of ADHD but have current symptoms is that they simply don't recall their symptoms. If we can get a hold of their parent and ask them, um, sometimes it's it's it, it helps. Um, I also like to point out, in terms of the onset of the disorder, that. Some people who have ADHD can be protected from the disorder for a while because of in what we call environmental scaffolding, which means that, for example, they may have very good parents, very organized parents who help them organize their lives and escape some of the uh, impairments of ADHD and escape some of the symptoms of ADHD. They may go to a well-structured school where the teacher is very good at handling kids with ADHD. Um, they may have a milder form of the disorder that doesn't emerge until the stresses of the environment get um, so bad that they overwhelm the ability of the brain's um, frontal lobes to control um, th- those symptoms. So we frequently see emergence of symptoms at key transition periods. A child moves from grammar school, which is well-structured, to say middle school or high school, which is less well-structured, and the decrease in structure makes it harder for the ADHD person to, um, to uh, succeed, and you see an emergence of symptoms. And the same is true from going from high school to college and then from college to a, re- to a real job. Or if an event occurs, like say the birth of a child, uh, and a new mother is all of a sudden faced with a fairly chaotic environment, dealing with that becomes much more difficult, and then we might we may see emergence of ADHD symptoms.
0: Okay, yeah. all right. Uh, let me re- remind listeners: this is Upstate's Health Link on air. I'm your host Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Upstate Professor Stephen Ferrone. He's an expert in ADHD, and you have a website about ADHD in adults. Um, yes, is- our website is
1: ADHDinadults.com. And it's a place where primary care practitioners can get training about how to diagnose and treat ADHD in adulthood.
0: Okay. Well, let's talk about the differences in the symptoms um, from a child to an adult with ADHD, because you're going to be looking for different things, right?
1: Ab- absolutely. So the, the three cardinal symptoms of ADHD are hyperactivity, uh, lots of running around, climbing on furniture in childhood, for example, uh, inattention, and impulsivity. What we see in childhood is a lot of hyperactivity, uh, and we also see inattention and impulsivity. If there's a child running into the street to fetch a ball and not noticing that there's a car coming. um, Those kinds of symptoms will, all the symptoms persist to some degree in adulthood, but the hyperactive and impulsive symptoms tend to decrease, where the inattentive symptoms tend to stay constant. And so...
0: So inability to focus, is that inattention? Inability
1: to focus is is a very good example of inattention. being disorganized is another uh, example of inattention. So the ADHD adult is not somebody who is going to be running around and climbing on furniture like a hyperactive child. Um, but they show these inattentive symptoms, these symptoms of disorganization. They will show, for example, or they'll show a preference for situations in which they don't have to sit still. So, for example if someone has a job which requires them to sit in a conference room they'll tell the doctor, well I, c- I can do it but I really hate it I'm just, I have, to, I have to get up and walk around a little bit I have to pace for it, it to be in the meeting uh, there's this internal sense of restlessness and it is, it, there's an internal sense of restlessness and in fact in our diagnostic manuals in an adult you can use that sense of internal restlessness that's, that's, that's um, in a sense impairing, it causes the person a problem uh, you can use that as a, as a, as a diagnosis
0: well, in terms of diagnosing, um, it, can you are, do we have the ability to do like a brain scan and see um, ADHD in the brain?
1: Uh, we do. We do not. There, are, there's no objective biological brain test for ADHD. Uh, the brain differences we see between people with without ADHD are real, but they're small and they're too small to make um, mm-hmm. good diagnoses. Which one of the um, things we're studying here at Upstate is just can we develop a uh, a method using artificial intelligence to compare ADHD brains and non-ADHD brains, and it's proving to be a difficult task.
0: Huh? Okay. So it's based basically on on symptoms, and then um, yeah. how do you treat ADHD in an adult versus a
1: child? So the treatment of ADHD for uh, either adults or children is roughly classified into two groups: uh, treatment with medications and tr- treatment without medications. Uh, The medications for ADHD that work in children are the same ones that work in adults, and these are um, stimulant medications. Uh, People will will recognize the names Ritalin and Adderall. Um, Their technical terms are methylphenidate and amphetamine, Uh, and these medications work very well. They have minimal side effects. They've been used for decades. Uh, They probably are the most effective medications in all psychiatry in terms of how well they control symptoms of the disorder. (laughs) Um, There's another... A group of medications, which are, we call them non-stimulant medications, because Ritalin and Adderall are stimulants, and then other medications work in different brain systems, and they're called non-stimulants. Uh, they tend to be not as effective for ADHD. They're roughly about two thirds as effective in treating the disorder compared to the stimulants, but they do work very well in a subset of kids. Um, a, an example would be Straterra. That's probably the most well-known uh, non-stimulant. There's also Capve and Intuitive. Um, that uh, Again, these work in What's called the neuroadrenergic system versus the stimulants tend to work mostly in the dopaminergic system, although that's a bit of a simplification.
0: And these are uh,
1: medications that will be required for a lifetime? Medications that uh, typically are required for a lifetime. As the child gets older, there is this age-dependent decline in symptoms and the disorder, and some children do outgrow it. So periodically, the physician will say, maybe we should try a holiday off the medication to see how you're doing. And if the symptoms don't merge after the medication is removed, then it's possible that they can they can be removed.
0: Are there non medication treatments? That there are
1: non medication treatments now. All of the medication treatments, I should point that have been rigorously tested with uh, what we call um, randomized placebo controlled designs. Um, the non medication treatments that have been tested, there's actually very few that are um, that show that they're effective for ADHD uh, by themselves. Hmm. So, one. Talk therapy type of treatment is called cognitive behavior therapy. We know that that is useful in people who are on medication. It helps people on medication do better than they do just on medication. Um, but it's it doesn't help people. It's not been proven to help people who are not on medication hmm, okay. al- already. So sort of medication controls most of your symptoms. Then the cognitive behavior therapy can be a booster to help you out there. Um, as you probably know, the public is very much interested in any kind of. Um, vitamin or supplement that is supposed to help the brain, and you can just Google it on the internet, and you'll, there's lots of so-called natural treatments for ADHD. Um, the only one that's been, that's shown any hope for, of, um, of use in ADHD would be the omega-3 fatty acids, fish oil, fish uh, oil? that we, okay. we know of. It's good for a number of things. The studies of fish oil show that it is, it is effective, but it uh, has a very small effect. So, for example, on a scale of 1 to 10, if Adderall and Ritalin are a 10, fish oil is about a 2, and the non-stimulants might be about a, say, a 6 or a 7. So we don't recommend fish oil as a treatment because it's minimally effective for, okay. uh, for the disorder.
0: We don't have much time left, but I would like to know what the outlook is for an, uh, someone who isn't diagnosed until adulthood.
1: Um, so the outlook for ADHD varies, of course, with the severity of the disorder. Uh, We'd like to emphasize for people that this is a condition that can have a a profound impact on one's life. We know that in adults, it affects their ability to hold a job. Adults with ADHD are more likely to be unemployed. Uh, We know, from, for example, if you look at um, people who graduated, just look at people who graduated from high school with an A average, and then we'd say, how are they they doing later on in life? Just people who are A students in high school. um, if you have ADHD and you are an A student, you're not doing as well in terms of your uh, job performance, in terms of how much money you're making compared to someone who was not an, not an A student. So it's, it affects um, employment. Uh, it People with ADHD are at risk for other health problems. Um, there's a, a very well-documented association of ADHD and obesity. Uh, we're now learning from studies that we're just doing right now that also a, seems to be a link between ADHD and subsequent uh, hypertension and subsequent diabetes and possibly possibly dementia. And this doesn't mean everybody with ADHD is fated to have these problems. Not at all. Uh, but it, because it's only a, a small group that ends up having, having these conditions. But we do know that the risks are real. There's even a very small risk for premature death. People with ADHD are more likely to have an earlier death than people without. Most of that seems to be accounted for by accidents. Um, because, for example, if you have ADHD and you're driving, you're driving a car, you're more likely to have a motor vehicle accident, which eventually could cause a serious health problem or, or death. Again, these are small risks, but it's important to, for people to be treated because we, we want to make these risks zero. We don't want them to be.
0: So it is important to be diagnosed and treated, uh, whether you're an Absolute, adult
1: or... Absolutely. Child. Absolutely.
0: Well, thank you so much for being here. Uh, my guest has been Upstate Professor Stephen Ferrone, an expert in ADHD. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, making sure your advanced directives are in order. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Have you been putting off the exercise of making your health care wishes known? Many people know they need to complete their advanced directives, and today we have a guest from Hospice of Central New York who's here to talk about the process of making our health care wishes known. Bill Foll, he's the communication officer at Hospice. Welcome and thank you for being here.
2: Thank you for the opportunity, Amber.
0: Well, this is one of those tasks that I imagine many of us just keep putting off, but you say it's important to take... Uh, make sure that you take advanced directives seriously and that you do it before someone becomes ill, right?
2: Exactly. Do it when you're healthy. You know, a lot of people out there, we take surveys, and 80% say, that, yeah, they're definitely going to do it, but actually 20% actually do, you know, besides a will, uh, do something called advanced directives. And um, it's, Do you
0: think it's because people just don't like to think about dying or getting right.
2: ill? But actually, that's only one part of this the part that people should think about is their last year of life and how they want to spend it. So if you think of it saying, I'm going to prepare for that last year of life because I want to do whatever. Um, I want to be able to do this or that. So if you look at it that way, um, some people will say, you know, I don't want a DNR or a DNI, or I don't want to deal with that. I want every kind of treatment I could possibly get for whatever I have. And that's okay, too. And some people say, nope, I want to you know, have a quality of life. Um, so it's really up to that person. It, it's never too early to start, and it's a plan.
0: Well, you say it's never too early. What age is a good age? I mean,
2: should... We think of this in terms of illness, in terms mm-hmm. of, but actually, you know, I can leave here today, get in my car, and have a, a tremendous accident, right? And and be in trouble, and no one would know what my wishes were. So, we're asking people to think about what they want their life to be like, their last years of their life. We want them to recognize someone they know that will advocate for them if they cannot at some point. So it's usually a wife, a husband, a trusted friend. That's your health care proxy. And like I said, this is a plan. It can change it can at any change. time. Well, that's what
0: I'm wondering. If if a young adult does this, say, I mean, there could be a lot of changes. They could do this before they're married and their circumstances change tremendously. But that doesn't mean you can't make changes to your advanced directives. Right.
2: You know, I tell moms just like yourself who have children who are in college or just getting out of college, they're gonna maybe not move to Syracuse or stay in Syracuse, they're gonna move away, make sure they have a healthcare proxy because they might get into an accident. It doesn't, like I said, people usually tie this with cancer, heart disease, COPD, kidney disease, whatever, but really it's for anyone who might be facing it, anyone who drives. So anyone over 21 should have a healthcare proxy, should have some idea as to what they want, To happen to them if they can't advocate for themselves,
0: and it needs to be in writing.
2: Um, The first step would be to talk to your doctor um, and ask that doctor, um, you know, what do I face if I do already have a disease, or what should, what am I, you know, what could happen down the road, and how he feels or she feels about it. It's important you to discuss your wishes with with your doctor. And right now, doctors can charge. Medicare for that service. So they're willing to do it more and more and more. It's a new law that went into effect, I think, two years ago.
0: To have a discussion? To have about, a, a discussion
2: okay. twice a year that can happen. So it's important you talk to your doctors and find out what they feel. I mean, if you already have some kind of um, uh, problem already. Um, some of the things that we should think about, you know, healthcare care proxy I already mentioned, living will is very important. While it doesn't stand up in New York State, a living will can also mean what your wishes are. So we see at hospice, as a matter of fact, a lot of families that are in crisis because there's arguments going on between siblings. No, dad wanted to be buried in the blue suit. No, he wanted to be buried Mm -hmm. in the black suit. And all of those things can be taken care of ahead of time so there is less stress. when that time comes, I'm sure you're...
0: So the living will isn't necessarily like a legal thing. You could just write
2: down... In New York State, and I'm saying this, in New, every state has right. different laws according to this. In New York State, the healthcare proxy and the MOLST, which is the medical orders for life-sustaining treatment, that's a mouthful, is very, very important. Uh, those are the things that um, first responders are going to look for. If you have a heart attack or if something happens, that's what they're looking for. Um so that should be available and of course in that most form that medical orders for life sustaining treatment everything is listed out whether or not you want a do not resuscitate order or if you you know want to be resuscitated I mean that that's totally up to you
0: You you also earlier said DNI
2: what is that um, it's I wonder do not do in, not intubate, intubate? Yes, okay right okay. so um uh, that would be a tube that people that you get
4: for breathing for, Yeah for, exactly
2: okay. And liquids and whatever. Um, so, power of attorney is important. Wills are important, but what is most important is that healthcare proxy. Um, if you go to a hospital, that's the first thing that you know they're going to ask you in an emergency: Do you have a healthcare proxy, and who is your proxy? Um, so, um, it's good to have that all worked out. I so said, talk to your doctor, and the thing is, talk to your family. I've gotten so many talks and, and speeches and whatever throughout the county, and someone says, yes, I have a health care proxy. And I say, where do you keep it? And they say, well, it's at the bank vault. And I said, that's the wrong place for it. Everyone should know who your proxy is, and everyone should know your wishes so that if something happens, God forbid, everyone will know what to do.
0: So um, saying to talk to your family, I mean, for some people that might be kind of a, it's a difficult Subject. It is. Um, do you have any advice for how to bring it up or when to bring it up? If or? you go
2: on the web, uh, well, there's some really good places to go. It's the Conversation Project, which is a great place to go. Uh, it'll give you tips and recommendations and advice on how to get that done. And really, when you think about it, and I know we just did something over the holidays um, It's a good time when families get together. And you really don't want to discuss this, but in a way, everyone is in one room at one point. And it's mm. like, let's talk about this so that if something should happen, we all know what to do. And what hospice has found that if people have that discussion and have a plan in place, there's less stress. And when there's less stress, people live longer.
0: Mm, good point. Good point. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Hospice of Central New York Communications Officer Bill Full, and we're talking about advanced directives and how to make your health care wishes known. Um, now, for people that aren't particularly close with their family or or maybe don't Really have family? Um, is this something that you can do with close friends?
2: Trusted friend. Trusted I know so friends. many nurses that um, that I work with who I say, "Is your husband your health care proxy?" And they, "Oh no, no. My best friend is my health care proxy because my husband would do everything in his power to whatever, and they don't want that to happen." Um, it's good to you know you could you could it's good to find that person out there who will advocate for uh, what you want. And when you think about that plan down the road. Think about the caregiver, the primary caregiver you will have. Right now, seventy-five percent of caregivers in America are women. So mm. I don't know how we get out of it, but us guys <laughs> get out of it. Um, so that's uh,
0: probably not the case in other countries, or is it? It, is it, it depends rate? on your culture.
2: Okay. You know, Asian cultures. Um, you know, um, elderly people, seniors, are revered more than here in the United States. Um, Culture here in the United States, uh, families kind of split off and go all over, so um, they're not centrally located. Um, but yeah, so think about who that caregiver might be, and maybe that's the right person to be your healthcare proxy.
0: And healthcare proxy, you're trying to choose someone who's going to do what you want done.
2: Advocate for what you want. So you're going to sit down with that healthcare proxy, and you're going to say, "You know, I really don't um, want to be in a in, in a nursing home." I don't like the idea of being in a nursing home. I really would want to, you know, um, die at home. And that's really the wish of most Americans. Um, But only 20% actually make it. So um, they either die in a hospital or a nursing home because care is needed. The medical, uh, American medicine is wonderful. People are living longer and longer than ever before. But they have chronic diseases for a longer period of time as well. So there's going to be a lot of caregiving there at some point.
0: Well, I found on the um, Hospice of Central New York website, I found a nice um, 10-step checklist for planning ahead. Um, And it seemed like it's not... It's not something that you can do in an afternoon, but it seemed like it had um, kind of a, a trajectory of the things that you need to do sort of in the order to do them, mm-hmm. um, you know, to keep you organized with what needs to be done. Uh, let me ask you this. At the same time that you're talking about your own personal end-of-life issues, is that a good time to sort of bring up the discussion with mom or dad with them about saying, have you made end-of-life issues right. or your friends? I'll
2: tell you what worked for me, and it works a lot, is that you say, gee, uh, I know someone, a friend of mine at work, Mr. G's father, uh, just went through a terrible time at the hospital, and uh, he died, but they didn't never knew what they wanted. And they tend to listen to that type of thing. So uh, um, that's a good way of doing it. Also, you mentioned our website, and... Um, the tips that we have on our website. Two, if you give us a call at three one five six three four eleven hundred anytime, we have people on staff who will answer those questions. And say, How do I talk to mom or dad, or vice versa? And this has happened. We've had mom and dad call us and say our kids don't want to talk to us about this. Ah. So it does go the other way too.
0: So they know that they want to to bring it up, but the kids don't. They don't seem to want to be hearing it. Right. Does it work to do it as a as a group project? It does.
2: Okay. It does. It really it, it puts everyone in one room. Everyone knows what's going on. There's no surprises. God forbid if something does happen by by surprise, an accident, a heart attack. Um, so uh, everyone knows what's going on, and everyone knows what their job will be, so to speak. Um, you know, the daughter will do the caregiving. Um, you know, the brother will do something else, whatever. So everyone is. Um, uh, knows what exactly what the plan is. So.
0: Well, I know that um, you know death can come unexpectedly, but uh, a lot of times people get a diagnosis, a serious diagnosis, um, from their physician. What are some of the things that you need to talk to the physician about when you get that diagnosis that will help you, you know, sort of inform your decision about what you want? What are do you do you have some ideas of some questions that need to be? First
2: off, the the best advice I can give you is a lot of people are afraid to talk to their doctor. They're afraid to take the lead and say, tell me about what's happening to me. What are the effects of the treatment that you'll be doing Um, down the road? What can I expect? Um, They'll answer those questions, and they'll answer them as honestly as they possibly can. Um, Ask them about um, caregiving, um, end-of-life caregiving. Is it something? Uh, do they do they believe in, in the hospice philosophy? Do do they believe in something else? Do they think palliative care is is, is is a way to go? Will they treat you if that's what you decide to do? If you decide to take a D, uh, to have a DNR, do not resuscitate order, will they still treat you?
0: Hmm, I didn't even think about that. Yeah,
2: so I mean, I think the biggest problem is most doctors will have that discussion, but I think the patient or the person who is responsible for the patient, their proxy, will have to bring that up.
0: We'll have to be the one yeah, to we'll actually Yeah, we'll have to ask. bring
2: that up and ask. Um,
0: I know some physicians don't like to give a prediction for, you know, if you say, well, how long have I got? I mean, some of them are uncomfortable. Well, we're not
2: asking that. We're asking what treatments do you think will, I will need and what effects, how that will affect me. Do I have quality of life with those treatments, you know? What are the I, side effects? Right, what are the side effects? Will I be able to, you know, every year... My husband and I go to Florida, um, you know, following the holidays till spring comes back in central New York. Will I be able to do that? Um, All those questions that, you know, might come up are things you should ask your doctor. And they're very interested in giving you a quality of life. So, um, and also to keep you as healthy as possible for as long as possible. So,
0: And maybe what would happen if you choose to do nothing? Like if you don't pursue any of the treatments. Exactly.
2: Some people are out there and say, you know, I really don't want to deal with it at all. Um, I'm going to let nature take its course. You should ask the doctor what how he feels about that, or she, how she feels about that, and you know what, what course they should take.
0: So basically, um, you're needing to get as much information as you can before you sit down and think about what you want your
2: end of life wishes to be. Right. So. Some people do this over two holidays. <laughs> I'm kind of Thanksgiving, right? Exactly. Some people do it. Thanksgiving could be a disaster if you talk politics. So this might be a better subject. <laughs> um, uh, to actually talk to your family first tell them what you want and then say i'm going to visit the doctor and they're going to tell me what i might expect so the second holiday that comes up would be the holiday so
0: neat well thank you so much uh, my guest has been bill foal the communications officer for hospice of central new york i'm amber smith for upstate's podcast and talk show health link on air up next vaginal rejuvenation on Upstate's HealthLink on air State Medical University. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Normal changes to the genital area can leave women as they age with problems that affect quality of life and sexuality. Here to talk about a solution called vaginal rejuvenation is Dr. Joyce Farah, an assistant professor of medicine at Upstate and a board-certified dermatologist at Farah Dermatology and Cosmetics. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Let's start with um, talking about the changes in the genital area that are normal for women as they age.
3: Sure. Um, A lot of women in the perimenopause to menopausal stage of life will notice changes in uh, their urinary function and their sexual function. And these changes can result from childbirth, weight gain, hormonal changes, or even trauma being surgical or none to the area, and these changes will include things like urinary incontinence, where where, where you leak, where you leak when you sneeze, you do jumping jacks, such uh, things. Could be pain on urination, frequent urinary tract infections. In terms of vaginal health, this will translate into um, dryness. Pain with sexual intercourse, decreased satisfaction with the sexual encounter, decreased quality of orgasms, and also changes in the external genitalia around the vulva and the labia. So those will age and change, analogous to what can happen um, with the face and 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 changes elsewhere in the skin. Um, so it is a it's a huge quality of life issue for most women, and most women are not aware that some of these changes can be reversed or are physiologic. Um, Are Are these normal
0: changes or are there ways of preventing these things? Is it inevitable that these things are going to
3: happen? Well, I think with the hormonal changes, there is some inevitable changes with the changes your body goes through with pregnancy. There will be some changes that occur, but you can help to keep yourself as healthy as possible by maintaining healthy lifestyles, not smoking, you know, not doing substances that should not be there, decreasing alcohol intake. The usual things you do for general health can help, but the physiologic changes with the hormones and with childbirth are, are going to happen, but we can help reverse some of these. Um, and this is actually an issue, this vulvovaginal atrophy, is an issue that I believe is underreported. I mean, most women will not report these symptoms to their doctors because they just think, you know, I'm just getting old um, and there's nothing I can do about it. But so, and, are, th- are the symptoms again, um, dryness, itchy, yeah, dryness? There's dryness, irritation, soreness, decreased pleasure. Um, okay,
0: okay. So what up until now, um, What has been done for this? Are there creams or medicines or anything? Mm -hmm.
3: Traditionally, the treatments for uh, urinary symptoms have been surgical. Uh, There have been some surgical interventions for for the vaginal area as well, and mostly hormonal. So you can do estrogen creams or suppositories directly inserted into the vaginal area or actually systemic hormone therapy. However... This is not for everyone. I mean, people, some people do not want to do hormones. Some people cannot do hormones if they have a history of breast cancer. Uh, In fact, some of the treatments for breast cancer will precipitate these symptoms because Mm -hmm. they're anti-estrogen therapies. Um, So... And and regardless of that, there's been multiple studies that have shown that women, even with hormonal therapy, will improve their symptoms. But about ten to twenty percent will still have fairly, uh, fairly problematic symptoms, even with hormonal therapy. So um, so I think the the way the new paradigm is going to be this vaginal rejuvenation along with hormonal therapy, if appropriate for the patient. Okay, so. Tell us, it's it's a long name, vaginal rejuvenation. What what's involved? So basically, these are treatments that are analogous to the laser therapy and the skin rejuvenation people are familiar with for the face. So there are different energy devices, uh, radiofrequency devices, and laser-based devices that work very well for rejuvenation of the face. They work similarly for the vaginal tissue. Um, the radio frequency devices basically emit electromagnetic waves that heat the tissue to a certain specified temperature. It's usually around 40, 42 degrees centigrade. And um, this heating actually causes a wound care response that will increase collagen and elastic uh, fiber production. The laser-based devices work slightly differently. These are Energy. This is light energy that's actually emitted, and the devices that are used are fractionated, which means that you get very pinpoint uh, beams of light that go into the tissue, so you create very specific microscopic areas of thermal necrosis, which means you will damage a very thin column of tissue all along this whole area that you're treating, and what that does, again, your body's going to heal this wound. So when it's healing the wound, it will, it will reform collagen and elastic fibers, and it will strengthen um, the thickness and the vaginal wall. And actually, uh, it also increases uh, lubrication because it does affect the production of glycogen and mucin, which are part of what gives you the hydration and the lubrication in that area. So, yeah. So they do. They do work. They do work very well. And like I said, if you if people are familiar with how they work on the skin, it's a similar mechanism in the vaginal canal.
0: Right. This is Upstate's Health Link on air. I'm your host Amber Smith, talking with Upstate dermatologist Dr. Joyce Farah. Uh, the subject is vaginal rejuvenation. So you've um, talked about how it's uh, the what's done on the face with laser treatments on the face. So that. Um, would get rid of wrinkles and tighten skin, right? It will
3: tighten skin. It will make the skin healthier. It will make it thicker. It reverses sun damage. So what happens in the vaginal area is similar. You don't have sun damage there, but you do have atrophy, so the tissue thins. Uh, You you do have loss of elastic and collagen. So it's it's the similar mechanism to strengthen it and thicken it. And when it's a thicker, healthier tissue, it functions better.
0: Now, people like to say that, um, you know, work they've had done on their face took 20 years off or 10 years off or whatever. Is there an equivalent for vaginal? I mean, what are, what's
3: it going to look like afterward? Well, there is, if, we, if, the, if the labial skin is treated, there is improvement in texture and discoloration and thickness. Because that area does get a little lax as well. On the vaginal side, it's not a visible improvement but it's a functional improvement so most women who have this treatment report increased satisfaction with sexual encounters Um, there's no more pain Uh, the vaginal area is much more lubricated there is increased quality of orgasms i don't think anyone's really qualified uh, or quantified the improvement as you know you will have function like in your 30s or any such thing, but the satisfaction has improved almost 100% of patients report satisfaction with this. And in fact, um, there was a study done with the core intima, which is a fractionated CO2, Uh, laser specifically for this indication. This was a a study done in Spain on perimenopausal women, so women who are still menstruating but have the hormonal changes. And they did a vaginal health index where they medically looked at certain specific uh, indices like vaginal elasticity, fluid volume, vaginal pH levels, uh... the epithelial integrity and moisture and they found that about up to about eight months after eighty two percent of patients shows a statistically significant improvement then they had a subjective um... um uh, they had a subjective survey and um, ninety-four patients, ninety-four percent of those patients uh, reported improved vaginal tightening, improved dryness, improved symptoms of atrophy, and 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 reported really very high satisfaction with this.
0: Someone in their 80s, a woman in her, in
3: her 80s, could she have this done? Or? Uh, I think as long as there's no physical contraindication, yes. However, here's the caveat: if This is going to be analogous to skin rejuvenation. If you come in at 80 and you've never done anything for your face and you want an ablative fractional laser, you will get some improvement, but it's not going to be to the degree of whether when you had started at, let's say, 40 and 50. Because the earlier you start, first off, the healthier your tissue is at that point, so it has more regenerative power, and then you can continue maintaining that effect. So you're not going to get the same effect at an older age than if you were slightly younger. So let's talk about how, from the patient's point of view, is this this a procedure that's done in the office? It's an in-office procedure. It is not done under any type of anesthesia, and it is not painful. It isn't painful. It is not. When painful. you talk
0: about lasers, it seems like you. Right. Do you feel anything? Can you tell us? Uh, you may,
3: you know, when you have lasers done on your skin, you actually sometimes do feel them. Uh, very interestingly, and in the intravaginal treatment, you may just feel a little heat sensation, but you do not feel pain. You do not feel really, basically, any discomfort. If anything, when the outside skin, when the labia, the vulvar area is treated, you might have some mild discomfort just on the outside. Skin. If patients desire, we can put numbing medicine there, but we don't have to. Otherwise, it's really, it's really basically pain-free. Well, how soon um, will you notice improvement? Uh,
0: I think you will notice improvement within two weeks. Within two weeks. Mm-hmm. Okay. In the interim. Um, do you, are there any restrictions? Is there anything you have to be aware of? Yeah,
3: yes, there are certain restrictions for treatment. So to make people candidates for treatment, maybe we should go over these first and then we'll talk about like post-care. So we cannot treat patients if they have, um, if they're actually uh, actively menstruating. So it has to be timed around the menstrual cycle. Okay. Uh, we don't treat patients if they have an active infection, whether it's urinary tract or a vaginal infection. Um, if there is a her- uh, history of genital herpes, we can treat, but we give people antiviral medication for a short time around the treatment. We will not treat patients if they have had vaginal surgeries or meshes or bladder lifts. Those are contraindications. Okay. To the so treatment. you can't have that. Mm-hmm. What about? Is there an age restriction? Or? Not really. No. Okay. Well, good. That's good to know.
0: Um, And then uh, how many treatments are needed?
3: Um, Typically for bladder symptoms, one. For vaginal symptoms, two to three. Okay. Uh, And post-treatment, basically patients can get up and resume their normal life. We just ask post-treatment that you refrain from sexual intercourse for a week Tampon use for a week, no douching, you know, anything like that. But other than that, you can go and exercise and go about your normal daily life as if nothing has happened. Now, you said for bladder symptoms, one treatment mm-hmm. um,
0: it, that's for urinary leakage. For urinary leakage, frequent UTIs, pain on urination, yes. I had just, know, I've, we've done uh, segments before on urinary incontinence and I didn't. Uh, I've never heard of this as being used as a treatment for that, but it
3: works. To it works, and so far the follow-up studies have been up to eight months. So, like everything with any type of rejuvenation treatment, I, you you are going to need some maintenance treatments. The question is, how far apart are they going to be? And I think you know maybe people can can count on maybe once every year or two. Although the studies are not really quite clear about that yet, so that's a work in progress.
0: Okay. And then um, are there any risks to having this procedure done? Any
3: things that um, could go wrong? Uh, Well, you know, anytime you use a laser energy and you use heat energy on any tissue, there is a possibility of causing a thermal burn. If there's a thermal burn, there's a possibility of a scar formation. Um, but, But these are rare, rare side effects that occur. Uh, but they can occur, reactivation of a herpetic infection, but again, that can be treated. And if people have a history, put them on, on antivirals before treatment so that does not occur. Um, those, are, those are basically the biggest is the thermal injury from, from the heat treatment.
0: Now, and you work ahead of time, you get
3: a clearance from a gynecologist, you you require your patients? We require our patients to get that because we feel like this is actually a medical treatment. We need to know that there's no active infection. They don't have a prolapsed bladder or prolapsed uterus. There's no other contraindication that the GYN sees for that. Most places do not require that. But in our practice, we do because we think it's just safer to do it that way. Okay. I know a lot of patients would ask whether
0: um, insurance will cover something like this. Have you seen that happening yet?
3: Unfortunately, as of now, there hasn't been insurance coverage. Uh, We have had uh, a few patients who have tried to get that, and they're in the process of trying to get it, so I'm not sure where that's going to go. But I think as of now, the safer bet is to count on no coverage.
0: Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for the information. This has been very informative. Uh, my guest has been Dr. Joyce Farah. She's a board certified dermatologist and assistant pre- professor of medicine at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection.
4: The Bible is often an early source of our stories and beliefs. For writers, it remains a rich source of imagery and discovery. Colin Pope, a doctoral candidate at Oklahoma State University, gives us a new look at Jonah and the whale. Here is his poem, Inside the Whale almost like you've wanted to be eaten your whole life, but eaten not by something for sustenance, no miasma of blood in dark water, nor teeth clinking bone, but by accident and by a cathedral and by a representative from the infinite array of the unlikely. So they could sing shanties of you beneath the mizzen and mainsails, and you, under the roof of a bandshell made from ribs and salted steam, could sing back, Oh, goodbye, goodbye, cruel sand and sky, and farewell forever to green, wandering the tongue and guts for some sign. No smoke, no charred logs or bone spears, or colonies of fishermen afloat on islands of kelp-lashed driftwood. One must wonder what a thumb tastes like, or wait for waiting until waiting throws you back and forth like a clock on a clothesline. Then... Just when you're turning clear, flaking away, a chance tickle and you're sneezed free. Isn't that how always it works? You're nearly jelly and nothing matters. And then you're the bearded lunatic stumbling the shoreline, one hand cupped against your ear, like the echoes are only coming from further away. Like if only the ground would move a little faster, you could catch everything you ever wanted.
0: Been Upstate's Health Link on Air brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, Health Link. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.